All right, welcome to the last episode of the year. Oh, glad you made it. If you if you're watching this episode, I'm going to consider you made it all the way to the the end of the year. Congratulations. I'm at my daughter's house here in Pittsburgh, so I don't have my normal lighting. Uh, the The top of the head looks a little whiter <laughs> or uh, too much gain on the side here, so I apologize if I don't look my normal self. Um, but I've been eating a lot of uh, dessert foods, George, and I need to start a fast because I am an expert at the feast. How's your Christmas going? Beautiful here in Florida, mid-70s, low humidity. Uh, you can see I'm a little pink. I've been outside. Uh, yesterday was the... I had nine services beginning Christmas Eve, going to the end of Christmas Day. And then Monday uh, was uh, Feast of St. Stephen. Tuesday, Feast of St. John the Apostle. Mm -hmm. Wednesday, Holy Innocence Day. Yesterday was the first day I didn't uh, have to vest and do a Eucharist at the church. And, of course, tomorrow is the Feast of the Circumcision of Jesus. So this is church week, folks. Uh, yes, it is. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's amazing uh, when you when you get to church season because the buildup is Advent. You know, you're doing the Advent, you're lighting the candles, you're learning about um, Advent, and you get to Christmas, you're like, okay, we're all done. All over, and then, oh, there's 12 more days and lots of teachings about uh, uh, the martyrs and uh, uh, how this all got to start and its its influence on the church and the church calendar. And, you know, it's, it's not over yet. It's not over until it's over. It's not over, really, until you get to ordinary times, George. That's the, the next over for the church. A um, lot going on in the news, but George and I are kind of on a semi-vacation, so we don't want to give you all the news stories in the last week. We're going to uh, tip off some highlights here. I'm looking here, and people wonder why we haven't talked about the Beth Moore story yet. Now's a great chance to talk about it. We know that Beth Moore joined the Anglican Church uh, down in Texas, and we're aware of the situation. What we find funny about that is the lack of understanding of the liturgical Anglican uh, service, George. And I thought we could talk a little bit about that because when the Southern Baptists discovered that their uh, um, uh, favored author and teacher, Beth Moore, had joined the Anglican Church and they saw her in uh, a cassock on the altar uh, passing out um, the Eucharist, that had been previously blessed by the priest, they went wild. How is this? Is she now a, a priest in the Catholic Church? She's wearing a, a clergy garb, and I'm like, oh boy. Well, we'll save that for another week. Well, that's this week. We're going to talk a little bit about that, George. Um, you've heard people don't get religion. People don't get Anglicanism, George. Well, it's funny. Uh... I picked up this story because people have been writing to me to say, why are you not talking about this story? And I had to think, now I know Beth Moore is a blonde woman, but that's all I know. I've never read anything she's written. Uh -huh. I'm not really in any circle. We have no concentric, we have no interlocking circles of interest. So I had to look up this story. And as I delved into the internet, the last time I saw something this nasty and this vituperative about someone moving from column A to column B. It was when Gavin Afshenden left the Church of England for the Catholic Church. It, you know, it was just as vociferous. There were some Baptists writing about this hell-bound go, woman going to uh, this 
satanic cult. The Anglican Church in North America. I mean, I thought, is this Catherine Jefferts Shorey is now a Baptist? Uh, what are they writing about? What, I don't know. what is going on in the Diocese of the Western Gulf? I mean, my, I mean, what am I missing? Well, the story is, Kevin, you're going to have to flesh out who Beth Moore is for people like me. Because uh, I just know she's a blonde woman who writes books. But... <laughs> well, no, she's a J.K. Uh... Rowling is a blonde, well, sometimes a blonde woman who writes books. But what sort of books does she write? No, I mean, we could do a, a simple check here on Wiki, and we'll read the first uh, more, we'll, and it will tell us everything we didn't need to know. Uh, bum, 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 bum. Now, is it Baptist Wiki, and it starts off, she's a hell-bound woman who is... No, well, I'm looking here on Wikipedia. It says, Wanda Elizabeth Beth Moore is an American evangelist, author, and Bible teacher. She's the founder of Living Proof Ministries, a Bible-based organization. Um, And she had some issues with the leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention and uh, the Baptist Church. I don't. I remember the blow up the last three or four years, and she decided to leave, and she landed in the Anglican Church. I'm not surprised. A lot of people who uh, uh, leave their denomination and are just looking for a good liturgy, sound doctrine, a creedal church, end up, you know, in the Anglican Church, and uh, we welcome her and we uh, uh, look forward to uh, uh, um, seeing how she flourishes here. If you want to yeah, look they, up Beth Moore more, you can uh, uh, look up the ministries I talked about. This is an interesting story, and I, it's a good news story because mm-hmm. this is good, great publicity for the ACNA. Absolutely. So sure. if, you're, if you're a disaffected Baptist and you don't want to go to the American Baptists or the Cooperative Baptists, you can follow Beth Moore to check out your local ACNA church. Now, the way she's being described by the Southern Baptist is that it would seem me logical that she'd want to go to the Episcopal Church if she's such a liberal, kooky person. That's that's not Beth Moore. Well, that's how she's being described. In <laughs> Absolutely, some yeah. But what I think isn't even more fascinating is this uh, Canterbury Trail phenomena we see among non-liturgical, some non-liturgical church people mm-hmm. who discover through the liturgy a relationship and through the sacraments a closeness to God that complements her biblical Bible-centric worldview. Mm-hmm. See, when you become an Anglican, you don't give up the Bible. In fact, your liturgy is as more biblically infused than any other liturgy out there. It's the perfect, if you will, mesh or melding of Scripture and of worship. I'm prejudiced, of course. I think we do it right. <laughs> but it really is it is fascinating to see this happen again and again and again of uh, people who are searching uh, on a journey of sorts. And they're, they're sick of a church that is built by men. And I don't, by man. By man, man, yes. Man, not, <laughs> but rather, they're sick of the, the ways of, society and culture and they're truly trying to find their spiritual home and they find this smallish church of anglicanism whether it be anglican church in north america episcopal church a continuing church but they find a church in various forms devoted to the scriptures devoted to the sacraments devoted to a liturgical way of coming together corporately to worship god hmm. and I think that is wonderful news, and it's encouraging. 
Yeah, I think people are, are getting more and more tired of watching their church or their denomination uh, duplicate or mimic the culture. And, you know, what's the point of going to church if, if all I'm doing there is uh, re-engaging what I don't like outside the world? So, I had some, uh, we've had visitors over the Christmas holidays in the past mm-hmm. few service days. Um, in the past, we've had people join our church because they're mad at the Catholic Church over divorce and remarriage. They're divorced and they can't receive communion. Over the child abuse scandal. They're mad at the church for covering up. Over, they want to see women in the altar at the pulpit and all this and that. This weekend, I had a man who was from the Catholic Church in town who was so mad at the Pope for shutting down the traditional Latin Mass that he's coming to the Anglican Church because for him, he, if he's not going to have decent liturgy, he might as well have the best English language liturgy. And he's discovered the 8 o'clock, right one, Episcopal Book of Common Prayer from 1979. Wow. Uh, as being second best to the Latin Missal. <laughs> I don't get I'm that. I'm not turning okay. him away, and I'm going to cash his check this week. So. I don't get that one. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because the, the Pope now has doubled down on his uh, uh, trying to stop the traditional Latin Mass uh, throughout his Roman Catholic kingdom. And um, there's a lot of pushback, but he's not, re- he's, he's not responded to the pushback at all, George. And at least here, the Catholic Church, Catholic Church is different in every part of the world, every country, mm-hmm. every diocese uh, takes on a different character. Here we have, a, I guess I would call a fairly weak Catholic Church. Um, there are three Catholic church parishes within driving distance, and all three have essentially foreigners, uh, Indians or things like that, or African as a minister, and they don't speak very good English. And you're getting these Italian and Irish and Polish Catholics moving down from the Northeast, coming down, and they're going to church for the first time, and there's a guy on the altar that they can't understand. Yeah. Um, And I hate to be silly, but that is a turnoff for a lot of people and so they don't go back to church but they're still Catholics or if they want to have a church experience they wind up on my doorstep Um, now that happened in Watertown Connecticut Um, my kids went to the Roman Catholic parochial school there and they had a long-term priest who served at least 35 years at this at the the main parish in the town he was replaced uh, after his retirement by a person um, who spoke, uh, well, he was from India, and he spoke that broken English, and the church emptied within weeks because people could not understand what was happening uh, during the service. Uh, the homily was not uh, understandable, and it took the bishop a good uh, six months to finally replace him with a person that the, the congregation could understand. And we'll we're, we're wondering how that happens. Well, contrast that with the Episcopal Diocese of Connecticut, where people can understand what is being said from the pulpit, and that's why they don't (laughs) come back. True. (laughs) You talk about a diocese that has just been decimated by their uh, uh, desire to be uh, uh, 
part of the culture. Woker than, woker than thou. <laughs> yes. Oh, let's see what I got for the next story. Um, I, I, I hate during the, the Christmas holiday show to talk about some bad news, but um, there was uh, a massacre in an uh, African country that we need to talk about. That's another Christmas Day massacre where um, evil people show up to a church, blow it up, or they show up to a church with guns um, in order to disturb um, this great celebration we have once a year for the birth of Christ, George. Well, it wasn't at a church. It was at a, a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was a Christmas celebration at a restaurant in the Congo. Uh, this is the Eastern Congo, uh, along the borders with Uganda and Rwanda. And ISIS, its local affiliates, have been strengthening and have been taking more into the Christian parts of Africa. We're seeing this in Mozambique. We're seeing this in Uganda. We're seeing this in the Congo. And at a Christmas Eve dinner at a uh, restaurant uh, in the small town of Beni, B-E-N-I, a suicide bomber walked into the restaurant and detonated his vest, killing six people instantly, plus himself, and wounding 35, 40 other people, diners. Um, we We so often forget how fortunate we are in the United States and in Western Europe, where this sort of awful thing is a rarity, is an exception, is not normal. And I hate to say this, but this is almost like not even worth reporting from the Congo because it happens again and again and again in Niger and Chad and northern Nigeria and all across that belt uh, where Christians and Muslims are pushing up against each other. We see almost daily and weekly uh, massacres, murders. Uh, the, the Catholic Church in Nigeria just tore a, tore a hole into the, into the Biden administration for saying that uh, Nigeria shouldn't be a place of concern about religious persecution. And the Catholic bishops are saying, what are you talking about? We've just had another priest murdered by Fulani uh, Muslim tribesmen. We've just had another, uh, it's not just pointing at Catholics, but any Christian of all denominations are targets in the border area, in the middle belt of Nigeria, in the north of Nigeria, for persecution by uh, militant Islam. Yeah. Now, it's interesting because here in the West, especially in America, it's very infrequent. We, I'm in Pittsburgh. There was a synagogue attack within the last 10 years here in Pittsburgh where uh, people were killed by somebody who hated Jews. We've had uh, attacks similarly in, in the South in some churches where a uh, gunman went and, and tried to kill as many Christians as he could. Um, it does happen here, but not with the frequency it happens in uh, different parts of Africa. I mean, we're not and immune, I, you know. No, I, I'm, I'm going to speak in generalities now because mm-hmm. not every case is this way, but in the United States, those cases are more often than not due to mental disorder. Absolutely. You've, yeah. you've got some nut with a gun, like mm-hmm. walking into a Texas church and killing his mother-in-law and whoever was sitting in the pew with her. Or a crazy, loony anti-Semite walks into the synagogue in Pittsburgh mm-hmm. and starts shooting. What we have in Africa is ideological madness, not... Uh, biochemical. Well, and everything happening here in America is condemned by all sides. The Islamics, um, 
Muslim, the Jewish, the, the, the Christians all condemn in mass when that happens here. You don't see that condemnation um, when it happens in West Africa. There's a little, the governments, well, two little, two, two recent appointments, one government, one quasi-governmental, mm-hmm. sort of made me think that uh, our elites don't have a good picture of what's going on. Um, the Biden administration has uh, basically given a pass to militant Islam in Nigeria and other mm-hmm. places that formerly the Trump administration was cracking down on. And the Biden administration appointed a new ambassador for religious freedom. He's a Muslim who has been on record as basically downplaying there is no connection between Islam and terrorism and Islam and jihad. And it's climate change that's causing people to fight in Nigeria, not militant Islam. Okay. And then the BBC appoints a new religion editor, and he's a Muslim. Now... I don't. I do not wish to prejudge these people, but if past practice is any uh, pointer to future actions, our elites are sort of keen on excusing or downplaying what the rest of the world can see with their eyes of is of militant Islam being on the offensive, seeking to kill you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and especially still in the Middle East. Um, uh, we have friends in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other places where, um, I hate to say it, the, the Taliban and other uh, segments of uh, radical Islam are, are having a field day. Uh, it, w- one of the, fr- we always like to tease the French because they're French after all. And, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> they, they deserve they're, they're, some of the reputation, yes. <laughs> they're, they're getting ready for elections, and one of the surprise candidates is Eric Zamour's. He is the conservative candidate, and he's the only one, uh, Not that's not quite true, other, Maria Le Pen, Marie Le Pen and whatnot is, but Zamours is of Jewish background whose family moved from Tunisia to France, and he gave a Christmas message, and he's a Jewish immigrant from North Africa, and he mm-hmm. gave the most profoundly our job is to save the mission of Christian France. That it could have been, you know, we need to push back. We need to deport all these Arabs who are here. We need to get rid of these people who created a state within a state that we can no longer close our eyes to the depredations of an aggressive uh, ideology that seeks to destroy Europe and Western society, and Christianity, as well as Judaism. Mm-hmm. And it's taking a an Arab, a, a Jew from Tunisia, to who's a French citizen, grown up in France, to make this point. Uh, I don't think Zemmour's has got enough behind him because the coalition politics of France usually get delivers the worst choice. But it's it's fascinating to see that there are some people, politicians now, who are not out in the kooky lands. They're not nuts. But there's now mainstream politicians, and it's starting with France, is saying the battle has been, battle has begun, and unless we start fighting back, we're going to lose. Well, this has been the season all the time where they have the car burnings in in Paris, where uh, Islamic militant youth who have been radicalized go through and car bomb, 
and not car bomb. They burn the cars. They burn throw cars Molotov uh, cocktails into the cars. So I think Paris is hopefully waking up to, you know, we're sick and tired of not being able to go into some neighborhoods uh, because uh, they're blocked off just for people of a certain descent. Uh, that's wrong. I, I know that people, we have friends in the UK who are sick of not being able to go to some towns because they've been blocked off for people of a certain descent. And a few years ago, a few years ago, Michael Nazar Ali made the point that there's certain parts of the UK that are no-go zones. You mm -hmm. cannot go to if you're not a Muslim. And Nazar Ali was just roasted by other members of the Anglican clergy saying, oh, that's not true. Oh, he's so racist, all oh, this and that. I don't think those people would say that now. No. Nothing has changed. It's just become more open. And the lies that they have been telling themselves and us no longer conv even convince them. Well, back th back then it wasn't normal, but now it's becoming more and more normal. Normal enough that it's made the average uh, Britain uncomfortable. We do need to deal with this. The average uh, uh, French person is now uncomfortable. We need to do something about this. Uh, Germany has been dealing with it uh, unofficially very well for uh, some time. They just don't talk about it. It doesn't make their press how they're dealing with it. So many things going on uh, outside of country. Find a lot of, you'll find a lot of Germans, Kevin, who will say the country has done a terrible job yeah, absolutely. at dealing with it, but they've done an excellent job of hiding it. Yes. <laughs> I would agree with that. I wanted to talk about another story that popped up on my little news feed this week. Uh, Japan now has brought back capital punishment. Uh, we know that it's certainly been a big topic uh, for the last century in Western society. What do we do with capital punishment? Do we allow it in our country? Do we allow it frequently in our country or infrequently only for the really, really bad people? How do we deal with it? Well, Japan has now re-entered the market of capital punishment. And I'm, they're just using it for mobsters. That's all I can see about it. You know, there's, there's a mob problem in Japan, but... Uh, how is the church going to deal with this? How is Japan going to deal with this, George? Well, it's a fascinating story for me because uh, the church, it, the Catholic Church, for instance, in Western Europe and in the United States has been at the forefront of opposition to capital punishment, as have groups, liberal Anglicans and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, well, the situation in Japan is that there was a new government, and the new government made a statement early on in its new term of office by the prime minister signing death warrants for three men on death row. Two of them were Yakuza, which are the Japanese mobsters, and these guys were convicted of murdering a pachinko parlor owner and some customers in a, you know, mafia protection thing. And the third guy had killed seven members of his family with an axe. So these weren't some poor, dumb Mississippi farm, black farmer who, you know, gets railroaded by the sheriff. These were two mafia killings and a mass murder with an axe. And they were hung uh, just before Christmas. And the Anglican Church in Japan has been in the forefront in the public eye in opposing capital punishment. They have really pushed this issue uh, over the past 20, 30 years. They also have an extensive ministry in the prisons and a number of people on death row have been converted to Christianity through the ministrations of the Anglican Church in Japan. So part of the thing is self-interest. They don't want their new converts hung. <laughs> hey, but, that's good self-interest to have. 
But the Anglican Church, you know, put out a statement saying, we really don't oppose this, and we hope the government does not execute people. Mm -hmm. And it laid out the Christian propositions and principles uh, for, for why you shouldn't do this. And what was fascinating was the Japanese Ministry of Justice spokesman was, you know, after these people were hung, was asked about opposition to the death penalty. And the Ministry of Defense spokesman said, well, it's what the public wants. And we're not a Christian country, so we don't necessarily share the ethic or ethos that drives Japan's Anglicans to oppose capital punishment. Now, in the United States, uh, in Florida, Texas, uh, we hang them. Uh, well, actually, here in Florida, we, we put them in the electric chair. You, you chair, Texas, and I think you put Texas them in the chair is, just to keep the chair warm. You know, Texas, they uh, have lethal injection. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there's some, a number of southern states have executions, but uh, up north they've not had capital punishment for a long time. And part of it again is the culture, the religious culture, at least in Florida, hmm. approves capital punishment. So the Episcopal Church's general convention can say, oh, this is wrong, or the Catholic Church in Florida can say, oh, this is wrong, because we're told to say it's wrong by the Pope, but the ethos of this part of the world is that if it's wrong now why is it right in the Old Testament and all this and that why didn't Jesus make a statement against capital punishment when he was about to be executed um, oh well, I, well, why is it wrought, I, I why think was it he right did what he, when, when he uh, saved the, the woman who was being stoned uh, for adultery I think he made an opinion on it but we're not this isn't we're discussing the news right now not the theology behind it um we'll have to see how this follows i think japan will have to shut this down in it in, in at least a decade uh because of the cancel culture you know hollywood's not going to shoot any more blockbusters in japan until you undo this uh, ghastly law but we'll see um, kevin do you think i mean how many times can they remake godzilla i mean this <laughs> What is, I mean, how many blockbusters are going to be made in Japan anyway? There are like 13 legit Godzilla films out of Japan. If you go to, uh, I think it's HBO Max has the list of them all now. And like, how did they get the budget for this horrible movie? But, you know, hey, um, moving on. Um, got a cop I don't know if you saw this, but the Biden administration is uh, encouraging those who got their money through ill-gotten gains, drug deals, and um, uh, other ways to at least pay taxes on it. You know, I, if little Billy, who's in, in downtown San Francisco, makes a thousand bucks a week turning over um, uh, some money selling dope, they, you can do that. We just want you to pay taxes on it. In reality, once you pay taxes on it, George... That money has been laundered. It's no longer illegal. So, you know, the Biden administration has now supported money laundering in, in Kevin's capitalist opinion. Good job. Well, here in Florida, I mean, we, we read about all the smash and, gab ro ro smash and grab, grab robberies yeah. mm -hmm. in Chicago, San Francisco, other northern cities. We had our first one in Florida. Uh, it, was in the, it was a major item of news because... In some respects, the police were a little disappointed because in the past, when we have these 
jewel robberies and millions are stolen. It's these sort of intricate mission impossible type things. Here, somebody drove down Worth Avenue uh, in Palm Beach, pulled up in front of a uh, store uh, selling Hermes handbags, smashed the window with a sledgehammer and stole what was in the display case, million dollars worth of leather goods. Some expensive cows went into those handbags, I gotta tell you. Wow. And took off. No fiddling with the alarms, no coming through the skylight, no, Mm -hmm. none of this stuff. Just using a sledgehammer to smash and grab. Well, the island of Palm Beach has got probably more, uh, what what are they called, Uh, video, uh, surveillance cameras? Cameras, yeah, security cameras. cameras. So, I'm we're fairly the, the police are fairly confident they are going to get these guys because uh, yeah. uh, they looked like some gangbangers from uh, West Palm Beach, um, according to the pictures on the TV. And I think they're going to have a hard time pawning quarter of a million dollar handbags. <laughs> it's just not the stuff you're going to steal if you want to. And then they're going to have to pay taxes on their thefts. And you know, can, can they? Did Kevin? Can you? Did is the Biden administration going to allow you to deduct the cost of your sledgehammer as a I don't expense? know. It's interesting talking about large cash transactions because we, as I, I think I mentioned in this program, we bought a new used RV a couple weeks ago. So I sold Monstro, our first RV, and the person who paid for it paid in cash. And it, it was a large sum of cash. We made a, a good, healthy amount of money on it. Well, we fixed it up over the last year. <laughs> I'm coming out even. But here he is, he's counting out $100 bills um, to the point where you, there's, uh, I don't want to tell you how much, but uh, a lot of $100 bills were before me. And I had to go to the bank. And the bank is like, where did you get this money? And because it was more than $10,000, I had to fill out a special form uh, telling them why I wanted to deposit this money into my thing, and that I was not the new drug lord of Webster, Florida. That, <laughs> so, uh, did they have to straighten out the hundreds that have been tightly rolled into into? Uh, into uh, <laughs> no, they were. Fl- I was afraid that these were counterfeit because they were so crisp and new. But they they put a little counter at the bank and they passed the counterfeit uh, um, machine. So, all right, cool. The guy wanted to pay in cash. I don't know how he got the money. Don't worry about that. But uh, the transaction was uh, upright, and I had to fill out my little ten thousand uh, dollar. This is not drug money card at the bank. So, and there's a new bank scam going. Have you heard of bank jugging, George? It's where people will follow a person uh, into a bank or into the parking lot where they just withdrew a lot of money, and once they get outside the bank property, they will mug them. And uh, that's happening more and more frequently uh, in this economy. A person in Florida was jugged for $75,000. It was an inside job. The teller uh, had a person come and withdraw the money. She called her boyfriend, hey, when this guy comes out of the bank, take him down, you get $75,000. But so many cameras, they were on the run for like half an hour. Well, enough about crime, George. Let's talk about some real news. Um, we shall go and talk about the death of Desmond Tutu. Uh, backing up 
This goes way back to 1988. Your host, Kevin Coulson, got to meet Desmond Tutu. He uh, showed up on the University of Wisconsin-Madison campus to give one of his anti-apartheid speeches. Uh, my uh, girlfriend at the time, Jill, who's my wife now, were in the audience. We showed up late. The only available seats were in the very front row. So we're there in our college attire next to all the dignitaries in the three-piece suits and dresses, and we stood out. We stood out enough that after the, his little speech, he came over and said hi, and he's a delightful uh, 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 fellow with a wonderful uh, South African accent. And I deemed him at that time to be the yoga, yoga, the Yoda of the anti-apartheid movement. Wise, and I knew that he would do the right thing at the right time when it came to it for apartheid. And many years later, when they were on the cusp of civil war, Desmond Tutu did the right thing and said, no, we will not go there. We're not going to take out our revenge on our enemies. We will love them. And this one tense moment in time when the whole nation of South Africa could have exploded back in 1989, 1990, he stopped it. And I think it would, you know, we can, history will say that yes, Desmond Tutu did the right thing at the right time. Now, like all men and women throughout history, um, his life was not just based on that moment in time. He's, you know, uh, has a history beyond just his anti apartheidness And we want to give you a full picture of Desmond Tutu here in the program. Um, who did the right thing at the right time for anti-apartheid, but he has some opinions after his retirement, George, that we just need to make note of. We're not trying to pick on a guy who's dead. We just want to be sure that you're not just getting all your information from the New York Times obituary on Desmond Tutu. So uh, get, get, lay this out. It doesn't have to be linear, but tell us about Desmond. Well, I, I've met, I've also met Desmond Tutu. I met him at the World Council of Churches mm. in 1999, with uh, by that time the apartheid era had ended and Desmond Tutu had uh, retired and Jankulu and Dungani was the new Archbishop of Cape Town and Desmond went into his retirement activities and he got involved in many justice issues around the world and listening to Desmond Tutu speak at the World Council of Churches it was quite clear that he was a fully paid up member of the liberation theology movement uh, I, can, I, can, I concur with that you know you don't find that much in Anglicanism. You found it in him. He, uh, for instance, did not believe in the atoning death of Christ. Uh, he, you know, there were things that, from a creedal and church perspective, I didn't agree with. Him. That doesn't mean he's a bad guy or even wrong. It's just he was not a Christian as I am, as I understand Christianity to be. And as and as I watched his career progress after the apartheid era changed, you saw his liberation theology uh, instincts take off. He became very active in the gay movement within the Anglican world. Uh, 
being one of the few African bishops to support Gene Robinson and all this and that. And his his change came about the time that his daughter came out of the closet and, and announced she was a lesbian. And in his theological worldview, he was able to support her because she was an oppressed person. And there are a bunch of stories out now. Uh, saw one Associated Press story saying, how come Desmond Tutu wasn't able to bring Africa along with him in accepting gay and lesbian issues? Um, and then it became involved in the Israel, anti-Israel movement. And unfortunately, he went a little overboard. Uh, Alan Dershowitz, the Harvard Law professor, um, did an extensive story about uh, Desmond Tutu's comments. And unfortunately, Desmond Tutu was an anti-Semite. Um, not just someone who was opposed to Israel, Israeli policies in Palestine, but who saw the problem as the Jews, mm -hmm. not the Israeli government, but the Jews. And his comments about the Holocaust, well, it wasn't as bad as they make out. They're still complaining about something that happened in the past. The Holocaust at least was quick, while the agony of apartheid was longer because it was worse because it was longer. Um, and question about this, he says, well, my dentist is Dr. Cohen. I have Jewish friends. But 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 the, here here's the paradox of his comments and his thoughts here in his anti-Semitism. Israel is the most pro-LGBTQ um, country in the Middle East. Yeah. Okay. Part of, part of Tutu's, and he's a human being. Of course, mm -hmm. we're all going to be inconsistent. But when you had competing narratives, pro-LGBT and pro-Palestine, um, Tutu dumped the gay movement when it came to the Middle East. Mm -hmm. He's perfectly happy to support the gay movement in Africa and the United States, Western Europe, in the church. But when Israeli gay groups asked them to support them and asked them to speak out for gays who are persecuted in Palestinian territories where it is criminal offense, you get killed get lynched um Tutu uh, the, the, said he could never be quiet in the face of injustice was quiet in the face of that injustice because a greater concern was to make sure the israelis were demonized and so when you had competing narratives palestine beats the gay move mm -hmm. and in the liberation theology of the worldview that's understandable I mean, I can see where he comes out that way. Um, so what does this mean? And if they put up stained glass windows in the National Cathedral of Desmond Tutu to replace those of Robert E. Lee they took down, are they going to have to take down the Tutu windows in a few years uh, when, the, when the clock turns and his anti-Semitism is uh, brought to fore? Uh, you, I, is, is, is cancel culture going to come from Desmond Tutu? And the thing is, have we now reached the point where it is so ridiculous because there's no person above reproach? I mean, Martin Luther King did wonders for the American culture and psyche, but he was a rotten husband. And people he, beat him up now because he was a rotten husband. Yeah. But you know, he is he is an icon for the civil rights movement. And I, I don't mind, and I will keep in my mind and my heart, that Desmond Tutu was an icon for the anti-apartheid movement. 
with flaws <laughs> with like, with women like, with flaws you know well let's say, say someone with like paul T uh carl bart in the christian world um oh, wonderful good theologian, example yeah but who was his un i mean but whose marital life was not one that we would mm -hmm. hold out as being anything close <laughs> to being christian no uh, it, it, is does that mean his his writings now are useless and worthless because he was a lech. Uh, well, no, but that's true. Even Kevin Carlson, when I read Karl Barth, I asterisk in my mind that, well, he had it right in his mind, but not in his heart, yeah. you know? And so, you know, I, I was a big Karl Barth fan until 10 years ago, you know? So I guess what I'm coming down with Tutu is that South Africa needs heroes because that country has gone to hell so rapidly. They need good people to look up to. And mm -hmm. holding up Tutu's actions in the apartheid era, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. But for the rest of the Anglican world to basically canonize him as a, as a saint might be taking it a bit too far unless we're also willing to give other people slack whom cancel culture in America has taken down. Thomas Jefferson, Robert E. Lee, uh, people like that, yeah, right. um, who uh, who did some good things. Lee's conduct after the Civil War basically helped restore the Union. Does it outweigh his conduct during the Civil War of being an open rebellion against the government? What do we celebrate? Which yeah. Lee do we celebrate? And uh, the, sadly, history will, will rewrite that many times. Who knows? Let's uh, hit our last story. Uh, we have lots of Christmas messages posted on Anglican Inc. Uh, for new pe people new to the program, Anglican Unscripted is the sister program to Anglican.inc, where we post news stories throughout the week, um, press releases, and uh, um, um, author posted uh, stories from George. So I'm reading some of these, and I'm like, we have a lot of people who were either seminary dropouts or failed seminary or failed New Testament class writing our Christmas messages on Anglican Inc. And I don't find humor in that because Christmas is one of the most important holidays in the church and in the world. If we can't get that right, you know, what's the point, George? Now, Christmas messages are a bit of a thing in the Church of England. We don't really see those that often in the Anglican Church in North America or the Episcopal Church, where a bishop will send out a three to five minute video or statement. It's not his Christmas sermon, but right. his Christmas message. Church of England, that's a bit of a thing. Each of the bishops pops one out. And I, I've, every year I like putting those out there with no comment and allow people, if they're so inclined, to read them. And... If it weren't so sad, it would be hysterically funny. Um, the Bishop of Derby, Libby Lane, people tell me is the dumbest bishop in the House of Bishops of the Church of England. That's Meaning, hearsay. We're not we're not doing anything libelous not, here. We've heard yes, this. Not we've heard opinion. this. We've not conducted IQ tests. Nope. Uh, nothing of that sort. Nope. But people who have worked with her, people who in her diocese basically say that the deer in the headlights look is not one that is rare in Libby Lane's case. Well, she gave a Christmas speech and I'm listening to the message and I'm listening to this and what I took away with it was that Jesus was the child of an unwed mother who lived in 
temporary rented accommodations. That's Jesse Jackson. That's, I've heard it, that before. <laughs> now, it may just be that these bishops have to basically, maybe I'm being too harsh, because they have to address the messages to the audience, which is their local area. And perhaps the people of Derby, Derby, uh, that's where they are in their faith life or intellectually. Mm -hmm. Because Julian Henderson, who's the head of the president or chairman of the Church of England Evangelical Council, his Christmas message was about climate change. I'm sorry, Julian, you're an evangelical bishop, one of the stalwarts of the Church of England, and you're giving me some sort of pap that the that my daughter could spiel out in her sleep about uh, climate change. What, well, what does what, this have to do with the message of Jesus Christ? I don't know, but the the contact scary word for climate change keeps changing. Um, it was climate emergency. It was climate red alarm. It was climate something something. This week it's rapid climate change is the new catchphrase for climate. They're, I thought it was trying global to find warming, or was it yeah. global warming or global yeah, cooling? It, it does, it, it's you know, it's fun to some... watch. We we all admit the the climate is changing. They just can't find the right scary word for it. I don't know. Maybe well, uh, I... maybe we'll find it in next year's Christmas messages. But the my opinion on these points is not to belittle Julian Henderson. He knows his audience. I don't know his audience. But my gut and my instincts would tell me to give an unabashed Christmas message like Eric Zemmour's did in France. Uh, not a pub conversation pseudo-intellectual talking points. Um, well, one of the highlights of being an Anglican uh, is is looking forward to Queen Elizabeth's Christmas message. She puts on video form every year a wonderful message about uh, Christmas, and it is gospel-centered. It talks about her faith. It talks about her family and her role in society and how she uh, sees God working within the UK. Wow! <laughs> this year was a little different. She talked about her uh, uh, late husband, but... Uh, you, you get to see that sometimes in, in world leaders, and I would love to see that in the future uh, president of, of France. Maybe. We'll see. George. I've got one little item I want to share. Okay, go quick, because I have stolen my daughter's kitchen, and I think they're gathering outside to come in, so we need, we need to finish up. Uh, there's an update on the Upper Midwest ACNA diocese story. Uh, yes. Earlier this year, the bishop uh, was stood down uh, Stuart Rook uh, was stood down while an investigation into the diocese's handling of abuse allegations against a lay leader in uh, one of their churches in the Chicago suburbs. Well, that lay leader, who had earlier been charged with crimes on the 29th, which was Wednesday, uh, Kane County, Illinois prosecutors filed two additional charges of rape against a, a victim under the age of 13. And Mark Rivera, the name of this man, uh, I got a picture of the police uh, uh, blotter, and I'm going to write up something. Um, 
this is getting worse and worse. Uh, my my anger level memory. after re- yeah, my anger level after reading that uh, off the charts. This. So we do, I don't. Uh, the ACNA investigation is ongoing. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't wish to prejudice what they do or what they say, but oh, this guy's a real skunk. If if the allegations allegedly <laughs> scumbag, yeah. Oh boy, George, what a mess. All right. Keep us in your prayers for the year 2022. Uh, we we do keep you in our prayers, and we uh, uh, hope that you can avoid uh, being infected with the coronavirus. We hope that what, you can what? avoid the inflation going on. We hope that you are prosperous and that you can draw closer to Christ in this coming year. I want to just have one little thinking of prayers. Mm-hmm. I just want to just call attention for people's prayers on one issue. Uh, let me. Uh, Kevin, you keep talking while I pull it up. Well, you, you, you need to have the stuff the ready. You know, there's no dead air. <laughs> so, a quick update I'm going back to Florida on January 3rd. Uh, George never left Florida. It's still in the mid 70s in Florida. I gave that up for uh, the, the 40s. It's But Pittsburgh's been beautiful all week long. Little clouds here and there. Have you found it yet, George? No, that's right. Okay, fine. I'm Kevin Coulson. And I'm George Conger, and you've been watching episode 707 of Anglican Unscripted.